You're listening to the podcast of Christ Walk Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida, where we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. We hope that these messages encourage and challenge you to live for something more. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Christ Walk. How's everybody doing today? So good to see all of you this morning, everyone watching with us online this morning. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm excited about today because you all are in for a treat. We have an incredible guest speaker. This person um, is a voice in my life, an influence um, in, in, in my life and, and the life of my family. Uh, she is someone that um, if I need spiritual counsel or advice, um, if I need to, to, to figure out what it looks like to follow after Jesus with my whole heart, um, it's someone that, that I know that I can always turn to, and um, she is uh, an incredible uh, leader in not only our church, but in our community. Many of you know her and love her, and you are going to be blessed by her message this morning. So I would invite you to give a nice, warm, Christ-walk welcome to Miss Ray Lane as she comes to deliver today's message. Wow. Tall order. Thank you, PV, for allowing me to speak today. It's truly an honor and such a privilege to come before you, bring God's word to you today. Mad respect goes out to you, Pastor Blake. You only get one week to prepare a sermon. Not even, six days. I had six weeks. So it better be good, right? All right, so... You know, we've been talking about the heroes of the Bible, and I'm going to bring to you the book of Esther. She was quite the heroine, was she not? How many of you read the book of Esther? Hard to put down, right? Awesome. Only 10 chapters, but so much packed in to this one book. It's asking me to join a network. Okay, can we have slide one? I'd like to present to you kind of my theme for today's message. God's providence and favor are still working in our lives, even when things seem out of control. Now, would you agree with me today that the world seems out of control? It only takes five minutes of watching a news outlet to, to realize you just need to turn it off because things are chaotic right now. And I have news for you. It always has been. Same, same, not different. We killed babies back in biblical times, sacrificing them to, to false gods. And what do we have today? Abortion. So it's not good. The, the uh, picture is bleak out there. But the good news is our God is in control and he is working behind the scenes in our behalf. And the book of Esther shows us that. Let me get to my notes. I'm already going off of them. Um, <laughs> so none of us are in control, right? You, nor I, nor our government leaders. God is in control. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight says, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Today, as we dive into the book of Esther, it is my prayer by the end of the story that you will be encouraged and be emphatically able to say, Yes, God is in control, and he is working behind the scenes on my behalf. Have you ever read a book so good you can't put it down? Just like we alluded to earlier, only 10 chapters but you can't put down the book of Esther. You want to find out the ending because you're so caught up in the um, characters and their uh, dilemmas, and you want to know how it's all going to end. Everyone loves the story, and the story you are about to hear is one of the best in the Bible, in my opinion. It's the one that I can't put down. The author of Esther is unknown, 
But his account so fascinated the Jewish readers that the book became a bestseller and went into many languages and various editions, continuing to be the number one favorite with Jewish communities and is read in the family every year at Purim, as, and it has been for centuries. You see, the book of Esther is filled with all the features that make up a bestseller. It's filled with lavish feast, a moody king, the world's largest beauty pageant, an evil villain, a mass murder plot, a courageous orphan girl, and a dramatic reversal at the end. It truly is sit on the edge of your seat good. So let's look at the characters. So first of all, we have King Xerxes. He is the grandson of the famed King Cyrus, the ruler of Persia. Next, we have Vashti. She's Xerxes' queen. We have Mordecai the Jew, and I call Haman the horrible, and, and you'll see that. Hadassah is Mordecai's nephew, or sorry, I'm so speechless about my nephew. My great nephew is in the back today, and you, if you get a chance to see him, you're going to be blessed. Anyway, she's his cousin, also known as Esther, which means morning star. The story of Esther takes place in 5th century BC in the land of Persia. The last two tribes of Israel were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. We know about 70 years later, Babylon was overthrown by the Medes and Persians by Cyrus the Great. At that time, Persia was the largest then known country in the world. It spanned from India all the way to Greece and down into Africa. So it was a very large territory ruled by King Cyrus at the time. Well, a decree of King Cyrus had permitted the return of captives from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple at the very beginning of the Persian period. Well, many Jews stayed behind and did not go back into the Promised Land. And these are the Jews that we're going to be focusing on today. Um, <clears throat> so King Cyrus's grandson is one of the central figures in Esther's story. He becomes king around 486 B.C., and his name is Xerxes. Can you believe we're going to learn a lesson all the way back from 486? Times just don't really change much, do they? All right, let's talk about this story. I hope you'll sit on the edge of your seat as I tell it. The story of Esther begins with a banquet. Xerxes is now on the throne and has displayed his vast wealth for 180 days. That's a lot of wealth to display, yeah? It culminates in a banquet that lasts seven days, complete with all the wine his guests, the nobles and princes, want to drink. At the very same time, his wife, Queen Vashti, gave a separate banquet for the women. That was the custom. The Bible says on the seventh day when the king was high in spirits from wine, he commanded his eunuchs to go and get Queen Vashti to have her parade around the men with wearing nothing but her crown. Those are my italics. So can you imagine that? He wants her to parade around in nothing but her crown. Well, she refuses only to make the king furious, and the Bible says he burned with anger. Well, he goes and asks the advice of his nobles, what should I do? This is horrible. Well, his nobles advise him to make an example of her so that their wives will respect them, right? And to dispose of her and choose another queen. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, let, us, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Verses, picking up in verse 5 through 7. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter 
when her mother and father died. So Esther is among the virgins taken to the palace, and the world's largest beauty pageant begins. Well, there were 400 women in this pageant. Can you imagine that? They were given 12 months of beauty treatments. I call it spa days. Can you imagine girls being in the spa for 12 months? Hey, it's biblical. We should be able to do that, right? So all this time, 12 months later, then one by one, they go in to see the king. It becomes Esther's turn. So whoever pleases the king the most is who he'll choose, right? So it becomes her turn, and God, up until this point, has given her so much favor that she is given the best place in the harem. Her cousin Mordecai sits outside in the courtyard by the king's gate so that he can kind of keep an eye on her and find out what's going on behind the palace walls. So that's kind of set up for the story later. Um, So she goes in to see the king, and he is so attracted to her beauty, he chooses her. She wins his favor, the Bible says, and approval more than any of the other virgins. So she beats out 399 girls. It's pretty awesome. So he sets a crown on her head and makes her queen instead of Vashti. So now we have our new queen. Now remember, she's just an orphan Jewish girl, and at this point she's hidden her nationality because her cousin Mordecai has asked her to do so. Do not disclose who you are, that you're of Jewish um, birth. All right, now we have a conspiracy. That uh, You know that Mordecai is hanging out in the courtyard by the king's gate. He overhears a plot of two of the king's officers to assassinate him. Verses 22 and 23 tell us that Mordecai found out about the plot. He tells Queen Esther, who in turn reports it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. That sounds like a pretty awful way to die, doesn't it? Well, all this is recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Let's look at um, Esther 6, uh, sorry, Esther 3, verses 1 and 2. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, enter our Haman the horrible, our villain, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, and he elevates him, giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why do you think that is? I think his Jewish heritage instructed him that thou will have no other gods before me. So he's being obedient to his father God and not kneeling down. So he's the only one that won't kneel down, and he's taking a real risk, I believe. So... um, Mordecai's enraged, uh, or Haman rather, is enraged because he's not being paid honor by Mordecai. So he learns who Mordecai's people are, and he scorns the idea of just killing Mordecai. He's going to wipe out the whole Jewish race in that area. And this is about, according to scholars, about 70,000 Jews, enough to make a big dent in the Jewish population. So instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he casts the lot to determine when it's going to be. He goes to the king and basically bribes him with money to let this happen. The king says, if you see it fit to annihilate the Jews, then I'll write an edict, seal it with my signet ring, and it'll be. And once that's done, you guys, it cannot be undone. When a Persian king makes an edict, it's as good as law, set in stone. So the edict goes out into all the land, and there is mourning. Can you imagine? The people find out. They go into mourning. Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate, 
not only tears his clothes, but he puts heaps ashes on his head. There's mourning in the streets, loud wailing. And Esther, behind the, the spa walls, is oblivious to this, of course. And uh, living in the palace, getting her beauty treatments, she's removed from the outside world. And I want to take a little rabbit trail, if you'll let me hear. Does that sound like any of us? The world's in turmoil going around us, and we're just busy doing our, our daily in and out, have habitual things, going to work, feeding our kids, working out, going to work, going to bed. Are we in our Christian bubble, unaware of the suffering of the world, of those around us who need Jesus? When word of her uncle's mourning gets to her through her servants, what does Esther do? She sends clean clothes for him to put on. She's like, cheer up. She still doesn't know what's going on. Mordecai refuses the clothes, sends her a copy of the decree, and instructs her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with the king for her people. Whoa. Now Esther verbalizes her fears, and they are well-placed fears. In verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter for them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. Let's have slide eight up here. This is pretty, pretty pivotal. This is a famous statement that you've all heard of, those of you who have read the book of Esther. Mordecai's reply to Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal, royal position for such a time as this. In other words, Hadassah, has it ever dawned on you that God has put you here for this moment? Has it ever occurred to you that this was never about a beauty contest? This was about being in a position of influence to save your people. Allow me to head down another rabbit trail, and I promise I'll get back on. Here's a thought. Like Esther, what if your entire life has been preparation for this moment? What if all that you've gone through in your life has been getting you ready for what's about to happen? Has God placed you where you are for such a time as this? Listen, there's only one you, only one person with your DNA walking this entire earth who has your exact heritage, who's experienced the events that you've experienced, who's gone through the suffering that you've gone through. God has been preparing you for this moment. He wants to use all that you've gone through. His hand of providence has always been on your life. The problem is a lot of times we don't like where we're at. We complain about God, where God's placed us. I don't like my relatives. I don't like my coworkers. I hate my job. Wait just a minute. Is it possible that God has placed you in these circumstances for a purpose like Esther? Of course it's possible. It's more than possible. It's a reality. God is in control of your life. He's created you, called you, gifted you, and now he wants to use you. We need to step out of our Christian bubble and pay attention to the people around us. Instead of cursing the darkness, we need to turn on the light. We need to ask the Lord when we need to be quiet and when we need to speak. All right, picking up where we left off on our story. Mordecai has just given Esther his famous directive you got to do it, Esther. you got to save your people. You're put in this position. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. 
go gather together the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will do the same. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Whew, that's some faith, right? Now, I'd like to point out here that not only is she about to break the law by approaching the king without being summoned, but Esther knows that the king has disposed of his first wife, Vashi, right? Real easily. And she's also about to reveal herself as a Jew. She's always been obedient to Mordecai, her cousin, but now she learns to trust God, her heavenly father, to hear from him for a plan and to trust him to give her favor to go before the king. I believe coming out of the fast, he gave her an awesome plan. So what does she do? Well, my guess is she probably had a spa day. She probably got ready. She dresses in her royal robes, the Bible says, puts on her crown and approaches the king. The Bible tells us when the king saw her, he was pleased with her and held out his gold scepter. So Esther approaches the scepter, touches the tip of it. And in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, the king asks, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. In verse 4, Esther replies, If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman, Haman the horrible, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Now, whether it was part of her plan or not, we don't know, but I believe God whispered to her to wait. Don't disclose your request to save your people yet. So when he asked her at this first banquet, what is your request, Queen Esther, even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. He repeats that again. She doesn't pour it out yet. She requests what? A second banquet, just for the king and Haman. So Haman, oh, can you imagine? He is so excited. He's not only second in command. He gets, he's the only person asked to be, that the queen asked to come to the banquet along with the king. So he's probably skipping out the courtyard and he runs into Mordecai. And Mordecai still won't bow. So the Bible says, all this gives me no pleasure as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Well, his wife and his friends say to him, have a pole set up reaching 75 feet and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. There we go again with impaling. So chapter six is the turning point of our story. This is the night before the second banquet. Well, the king cannot sleep. Think that's a coincidence? I think not. It's now clear that Esther's delay and call for the second banquet is divine providence. What does a king do when he can't sleep? Well, Xerxes orders the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. How boring, right? Well, <laughs> the guy that came in and pulled, pulled the book, one of the books, I can imagine they're this big and there's shelves of them with all everything written down of the reign of King Xerxes, opens the book, and what story does he land on? The, story, the assassination plot that Mordecai uncovered. So the king is again reminded of this, and he says, wait a minute, what has been done for this man that saved my life? Has anything been done for him? And his servant says, I don't think so. Bring in Haman. Haman, what would I do? What should I do? To the, what should the king do for the man the king delights to honor? And uh, Haman, of course, thinks he's talking about him. Well, king, I would put on one of your royal robes on the man that you desire, you want to honor, and I would put him on one of the royal horses that you've ridden. And then I would have him taken around by one of your princes throughout the whole city and proclaimed 
this is the man the king delights to honor because he thinks it's him, right? So what does the king say? Good idea. You go do that for Mordecai right now. <laughs> Whoa. Can you imagine? Humility, shame. So Haman's got to do this, right? So, you know, I, I can only imagine his downcast face as he does it. So as soon as that's over, he brings Mordecai back, and the king's eunuchs arrive and hurry him, Haman off to the second banquet that Esther has prepared. So Haman gets to second, second banquet number two in, hum, in humility, but he's slightly cheered up because he's at the banquet. So again, the king asks Esther, what is your request? She, she, the floodgates open. She begs for her life. She admits that she tells him that she's a Jew and tells him of the plot to annihilate her people. The king is furious and asks her, who did this? And this is my favorite part of the whole story. She points to Haman and says, that vile Haman. The king immediately orders Haman to be impaled on the pole he erected for Mordecai. Esther requests that Haman's sons also be impaled on poles. The king honors Mordecai by making him second in command. And all Haman's lands are given to Esther. My, how the tables have turned. Now the king's edict in behalf of the Jews was a law in Persia that could not be undone. But what he could do is issue a second law that allowed the Jews to arm themselves and defend themselves when, when attacked. So the Jews killed thousands of their attackers, and the Bible tells us there was much feasting and celebrating. And this is how the Feast of Purim, which the Jews still observe today, was established. During all their celebrating, Esther requests that Haman's sons also be impaled on the poles, and he honors... Oh, I already read that. Okay, the end. Okay, that's the end of the story. <laughs> I am not a professional speaker, despite what he says. Um, now, the name of God, as we, as we alluded to earlier, is not mentioned once in the entire book. But do you see his hand all over it? It's hard not to. He's behind the scenes orchestrating everything. Think about all the things that God arranged in the book of Esther. He arranged for Queen Vashti to be removed, for there to be a contest to replace her. God arranged for Esther to enter the beauty contest. He arranged for Esther to have special favor. God arranged for Mordecai to have access to Esther. God arranged for Esther to delay her request, first asking for a banquet and then a second. God arranged for Xerxes to have a sleepless night, yeah? And he arranged for him to pick up one particular book and turn to one particular story, the story of Mordecai overhearing the plot. The story of Esther reminds me so much of a very familiar verse, Romans 8:28. Come on, say it with me if you know it. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. Isn't that the whole theme of the book of Esther? Well, that's one thing this book shows us, and there's four others. So let's go back over the first one, that God's arranging things. All the, I like to think of, you know those, uh, are they coconut shells or cups? And they're, I kind of think of God doing that a lot. It makes me know there's no such thing as fate, that he is always arranging things behind the scenes. So here's the other lessons that I picked up from Esther. God doesn't overrule our actions. He uses the actions of Esther and Mordecai to save his people. They were perfectly free to do whatever they wanted to. Haman and Xerxes as well. God didn't interfere. Everyone acted out their own will, yet God's will was accomplished. He was working out his eternal plan through it all. 
The third thing that the story of Esther shows us is that God allows his people to be tested. Mordecai was tested when he wouldn't bow to Haman. He was obedient to God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Esther was tested when she was faced with approaching the king to save her people, knowing she could die in so doing. And the fourth, the principle of a greater law. The law of a Persian king could not be changed. Neither could the law of God. What Xerxes did by making another law so that the people could defend themselves is what God did for us, essentially. He didn't take away the law that condemns us as sinners, but he made a greater law of righteousness received in Jesus Christ that allows us to be saved. And finally, we see that the story of Esther shows us something about Jesus. What does Esther's name mean? Do you remember? Morning star. What is one of Jesus' titles in scriptures? The bright and morning star. Didn't God provide a deliverer for his people just as Esther was um, the deliverer for her people? The Jews in Esther's time had hope, knowing they had someone on their side that was close to the king. The Bible tells us that we have an advocate too. Jesus is always interceding to the Father on our behalf. Oh, the almighty and everywhere present power of God. What is our response today? Don't think that God hasn't been using you, preparing you, using those mistakes, guiding you, perhaps for years, for such a time as this. In Isaiah, the Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than yours and my ways than your ways. God's providence and favor are still working in our lives, even when things seem out of control. Are we willing to be used by God in the position that he's placed us in to carry out the will, his will on this earth? Guys, as these end times heat up, the lost are going to be looking for hope. And believer, you carry that hope. Maybe we just need to ask ourselves, does God have me where I am because he wants to use me like he used Esther? And I want to kind of go down another rabbit trail before we close. In the beginning, when I told you that the Jews had been exiled, they were um, held captive in Babylon for many years, they were released to go back to Jerusalem, back to the Promised Land to rebuild their temple. And this segment of the Jewish population stayed behind. I believe, and I've read a lot about this, because they were comfortable with life as they knew it in Persia. They had become complacent, maybe a little bit lazy, comfortable like we get, and not willing to make that arduous journey to back to Jerusalem. God still, even though they were disobedient, they were still his people. He still loves them. He still worked on their behalf, arranging all the things that he did in this book. And I would say to some of you that are possibly grieving for loved ones that are lost, those of you who have been praying for years for, for your loved ones to come to know Christ, have hope. They may be in disobedience, but you've planted those seeds. You have to trust God to water them, to send other believers to pour more water on them, and just take your hands off. Trust that God has them. He wants them saved worse than we do, right? So let's pray for lost loved ones. I know he's probably dropping those names in your spirit right now. And let's close out the service by going to the Father. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is living. It never changes. You are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You're the same God that gave Esther favor and told her what to do, gave her a plan. 
And Lord, I know that you are faithful to do that to your people today. We're living in rough times, chaotic times, but you are in control and we know the end of the book. Ask you today, Father, to give your people encouragement that you are working on their behalf always and that we have an advocate named Jesus, the bright and morning star interceding for us before the Father. We love you today, God. We give you these lost loved ones. We place them in your hands and we leave them with you and we trust you to bring about their, their salvation in your timing. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Christ Walk Church podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. To find out more information about Christ Walk Church, including our service times, how to connect with us on social media, and the ministry opportunities we have for you and your family, simply visit our website at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come.